0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Rick Ridgway on Life Lived Wild. First, I want to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Animals and Nature or Science and Medicine category for episode number 146 with Doug Chadwick on Four-Fifths a Grizzly. This is Doug Chadwick, the author of Four-Fifths of Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. And this is Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Rick Ridgway is an adventurer, documentary filmmaker, and best-selling author. His new book is called Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. Rick, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Well, Trey, I'm great. I hope you are, too. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Really loved checking this book out over the last week or so. What was your goal with Life Lived Wild?
1: Well, it had an unusual genesis. I was in Patagonia, the place, down in Southern South America, uh, working with my good buddy, Jimmy Chin. Um, I've been a mentor for Jimmy since he started as a filmmaker. Now, he's of course, he's famous uh, as the filmmaker who made uh, Free Solo, and now the rescue, uh, Jimmy was in South America making a, a film about a very close friend of ours, Chris Tompkins. And we were on our way home in the Santiago airport on layover uh, and we were getting into our second beer. And I was regaling him with my uh, stories, my old school stories, as he called them. And he said, he said, dude, you got to have an Instagram account. So by the time the flight left, I had an Instagram account I'd made posted my first couple of stories. And I started to gain followers, one of whom was my daughter. And she said, Dad, pops, as she calls me, you got to turn your Instagram account into a book. <clears throat> well, I did. Um, I ended up with over 50 stories of adventures and expeditions around the world over five decades. <clears throat> but the book turned into a doorstop. It was huge, <clears throat> uh, it was way too long, and it wanted to be a memoir. <clears throat> But a collection of stories wasn't the right form, so I pushed pause and went into a a long um, rewrite <clears throat> and also a long reflection, Trey, about what I was trying to um, tell whoever might want to read this book to answer your question. Uh, and I had to think about that. I had to think, well, what is really the 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 track or the what has been my journey over those 50 years of going on adventures. And I I realized the answer to the question was how in the beginning, my life of adventure was all about the expeditions and the adventures and the people I was with and the places I was going to. And over the course of my life, there was a long gradual change from the expeditions and the places to saving the places I was doing the adventures and expeditions and that became the arc of the book and I hope readers pick up from that the lessons that I've taken from the high altitudes and brought home to sea level uh, from this life of adventure and the most important one of all is how we all have to rally and do what we can to save what's left of the wild parts of our beloved home planet
0: Very well said there, and in thinking of and learning about your life as an adventurer, it's interesting to think back to mine and really anybody else's childhoods, and perhaps I'm able to do so because I have a seven- and a five-year-old at home right now, but we all start out as adventurers, but then we become creatures of habit, and a lot of us just stop taking those risks. Do you remember a point later in your childhood or perhaps adolescence where you realized that a life of an adventure was your best life?
1: Well, again, that wasn't a single epiphanous experience, but one of the most pivotal, though, was when uh, I got in the mailbox uh, my mother's uh, subscription she had given me to National Geographic. Uh, and inside was the story of the first American ascent of Mount Everest back in 1963. And there was a photograph of the first American to reach the summit, Jim Whitaker. Uh, on top of the mountain, uh, holding up his ice axe with an American flag and a National Geographic banner tied below that, whipping in the wind. And I saw that image, and I looked at it, and it captivated me. And I said to myself, I want to be that guy. <clears throat> and that's how it started. Uh, later that same summer, uh, in the mountains, uh, on a uh, family vacation with my best friend, uh, he and I uh, stole off from the family's cabin and climbed a mountain at my persuasion. And I was really hooked then. Uh, So that's how it started um, as a magazine story.
0: While many of your adventures involve mountaineering, and we will certainly get to some of those, you admit that your first big adventure was sailing from Hawaii to Tahiti with several classmates from the University of Hawaii. And you were really hooked on sailing from there. You actually sailed many other places, including to Panama, where you met a guy with a boat who invited you to take part in a scheme. How did you end up in a Panamanian prison as a result, and what was that experience like? Well,
1: in my early twenties, um, I had a twin twin passions for for climbing and and sailing, and I was pursuing both uh, almost simultaneously. I'd go off on climbs, and then I'd find a boat I could crew on and take off on a sailing voyage and one of the longest uh, began in Hawaii uh, where I got a job as a deckhand on a big yacht, a big catch that belonged to a rich guy and we voyaged through the South Pacific and then uh, his wife wanted to spend the Christmas in Mexico so we had to make a long passage across the Pacific against the wind to Mazatlan, it was about almost 5,000 miles as uh, we tacked across the ocean. And then we sailed down the coast uh, to Panama to cross the canal and go into the Caribbean. And I was by then uh, kind of uh, over uh, the idea of being a deckhand for a rich guy. Hmm. And I met two guys who had this schooner that were going the opposite direction towards Fiji. And they invited me to join their boat. And they also invited me in on the scheme they had. One of them had spent time in Colombia with the Hill Tribes there who work in emerald mines. Uh, and the Indians uh, also, I think they probably pocketed some of the emeralds. Anyway, they had gems. And they also had 22 rifles that they used for uh, subsistence hunting. But they didn't have enough ammo, uh, single-shot 22 ammo. Uh, and we had, they, these two guys had met someone in the U.S., rifle range uh, who could order 22 shells. So they said, come on in with us and uh, we'll pool our money and we'll buy some 22 shells and we'll sail them on our boat to Columbia and we'll take them up into the mountains and we'll trade them for emeralds. And then we'll sail the boat to Fiji where there's these indie merchants uh, that um, trade in gemstones and we'll cash them in and we'll buy an island. Maybe we can start a resort. We already got the boat. (laughs) And I thought, Wow, you know, this is a pretty cool idea and this was, you know, decades before I really learned how to parse a, a business plan. <laughs> so <laughs> I I went in, you know, I had some money I'd saved up as a deckhand and had a few thousand bucks I threw in the kitty. They threw in their money and we ordered 50,000 rounds of 22 shells. Well, that was more than the guy in the rifle range could get right away. So, we were sailing around uh, islands off the coast of Panama waiting for the ammo to arrive when instead of ammo, a Panamanian Navy boat pulled alongside and they had somehow got wind of our scheme and I got arrested. Well, it took weeks and weeks before they figured out that I was just the innocent bystander, uh, the young naive kid who had thrown in his chips. And those months, those weeks in in jail were, as you can imagine, uh, horrific. Um, The first night uh, in a holding tank with a bunch of drunks, there was a young kid who was drunk and cursing the guards and the older guys tried to keep him quiet and tell him to shut up, but he was drunk. And then in the early hours of the morning, after he'd fallen asleep, the guards came in and hauled him away and they brought him back two hours later. And he was beaten so badly that by dawn he was dead and They drug out his body well that was my first night there i uh during the month i was in jail saw four other people get killed shot to death so not knowing how long i was going to be in there um, i had to think long term of how i was going to survive this if i was in there for a long time and one day um another prisoner stole a little bag I had uh, with just a few things in it. The 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 police had allowed me to take with me to jail, <clears throat> and I knew I had to do something about it. So I confronted him. I I I tackled him. I drove his head into the bars of the jail door and and pummeled him as hard as I could. And all his friends jumped on my back and the whistles blew and the guards came running with their rifles. And as they pulled the last guy off me, he whispered in my ear. <clears throat> As soon as you go to sleep, you're dead. And I thought that was it. I'm gonna get stabbed to death. And then another prisoner who really ran the whole prison. I never did figure out the source of his influence, but he had it and his influence extended to the guards. And he told the guards that he wanted me in his cell. So they did, they transferred me to his cell. And he said, you know, Gringo, that took guts. I like men who have guts, and I was just too trembling to even reply, but he took me under his wing, and he protected me, so I made it through, and after a month, I got out, and uh, I was shaken, but not so much that I abandoned my commitment to travel and adventure and expeditions, and and I kept going, Uh, perhaps not as naive as I had been going into it.
0: You have seen a lot of human horrors throughout your life, and you've also been close to death on more than one occasion. That's a lot of trauma for any one person to deal with. Is there a way that you have come to understand how to process traumas like that, considering that you've been through it so much?
1: Yeah, a close friend of mine uh, with whom I was recently sharing these stories said, you know, you probably need a therapist and you don't even know it. <laughs> and I have actually thought about that. <clears throat> um, you know, do, have I handled this uh, as well as I think I have? <clears throat> do I really need someone to um, help me? Because do I have, you know, deep-seated uh, anxieties and fears and concerns that I'm perhaps not even aware of. And and I may, but but I don't think so, Trey. And, and I don't say that trying to boast at all, but rather I say it trying to um, explain some of the deepest lessons I've taken from these experiences where I've come so close to dying myself. And in some of those experiences, my closest friends around me have died. Um, And from those experiences, the most important thing I've taken is a deep understanding and awareness of how important it is for all of us to live as fully as we can in each day that we have on this planet, and to understand deeply and integrate into your bones the, the realization that as soon as we're born, for all of us, the clock starts ticking. And for all of us, we have that day unmarked out there on our calendars that will be our last day on this planet. And from that awareness and understanding on a deep visceral level, how essential it is to get the most out of our lives, to live the fullest we can each day of our lives. And that's one of the most important things I've taken from my own experience my near-death experiences. And, and that's a another lesson, I guess you would call it, that I, I hope the readers uh, can take from the book. Um, but, you know, I have taken care to learn how to be a good writer. And I know that in good writing, um, you never want to try and express a lesson directly, but rather tell your stories in a way that you hope inspire your readers to see themselves in your stories in ways that can inform their lives from your life. And I really hope with this book, um, I've succeeded in doing that. That was certainly my goal.
0: I think you have. And the reason why I asked that question is because you, unless you're a total sociopath, which I don't think you are, you have a very level-headed logical viewpoint on things. So thank you for sharing a little bit of your mindset there. Now, you had an epiphanous moment at the age of 26 that kept you from pursuing a PhD at Cal Berkeley. How did the course of your life change so suddenly in that moment?
1: I had in college or the university studied anthropology and I had pursued an idea that I wanted to be a professor. Uh, not in anthropology, but in um, cultural geography. Uh, That's the discipline that I had landed on that uh, seemed to most resonate with my interests. And I had worked really hard to get into a graduate program. I had uh, gone to school in South America. I had uh, done field work uh, in the Andes and Peru uh, with Indian tribes. Um, I had tried to distinguish myself uh, because I wasn't that strong academically, um, through, the, through field work and doing other things that you know might separate me from the other applicants in a good school, and it had worked. I had gotten into a PhD program in Berkeley, uh, and it was one of the uh, best schools in the world for, for the discipline I wanted to pursue. And I wanted to be a professor. <clears throat> and uh, that was my path when, just before school was going to start, my climbing partner at that time uh, called and said, I've got us on an expedition. And I said, an, uh, an expedition? He goes, yeah, yeah. He says, this one's going to be the best one yet. And I said, where to? And he said, the Himalayas. Well, I had dreamed of somehow, someday, some way, getting to the Himalayas. And I said, what's what's the mountain? And he paused, which I realized later was for effect, before he said, Everest. <laughs> I said, Everest? <laughs> well, back then, in the mid-1970s, Uh, Everest had only been climbed once by an American team, and that was the team that had been featured in that National Geographic article that had come out in 1963 with the photograph of Jim Whitaker on the summit that had inspired me to be a climber. And I told my climbing partner, give me a day. I got to think this through. Do I become a professor or do I give up the chance to go to Everest. And I say in the book, Trey, that all of us reach forks in our roads where the signposts are made not from facts, but from intuitions. And we have to learn to trust the authority of those intuitions, our instincts. And so I did that and called my friend back the next day and said, I'm going to Everest. (laughs) And that was A major fork in the road. For me, of course, it set the the path. It put me on the road uh, I've stayed on for the rest of my life.
0: You end up going to Everest. After that, you actually do make it to the top of K2, and that was a historic moment in terms of Americans making it to the top of K2, correct?
1: Yes, and I had failed to get to the summit of Everest. Uh, Even though I had done much of the lead climbing uh, up to, uh, a point called the South call, but there at 26,000 feet, I had suffered what I later learned was, a a lung illness, a bronchitis that had forced me to a- abandon my own attempt at the top. And I was deeply disappointed and not just disappointed, but unsure whether I had some sort of, uh, physical limitation, whether that, um, Uh, Prevented me from operating or you know climbing at high altitude, Um, but I had a chance to find out two years after the Everest expedition when I was invited to join uh, an American team uh, attempting K2, the second highest peak in the world, also in the Himalayas, but in the opposite end of Everest, uh, and now regarded as of the highest higher mountains in the world, um, the most difficult in the world to climb, and. It's a really good thing we didn't know that back then. <laughs> but I also didn't know, you know, what would happen to me when I returned to high altitude. Whether the limitation or the problems I had on Everest would resurface again, and, and if mm. they did, whether I might not be so lucky this time, and um, and have a potentially fatal illness at high altitude. <clears throat> so there was all this uncertainty. Not to mention the mountain itself. This mountain that is so much more um just grand than everest i mean there's nothing like it on planet earth when you see k2 from a distance it's this giant pyramid rising in to the sky above everything else around it singular and grand uh the grandest mountain uh, on the on the planet hmm. not only that the expedition was led by none other than jim whittaker the guy who was in that photograph uh from my childhood that inspired me to want to be a climber and there i was uh you know perhaps 10 or 12 years after being a kid and seeing that um photograph in national geographic i was on an expedition led by the guy that I, who i wanted to be so there was a great satisfaction in in that as well uh it took so long to climb that mountain uh we had to walk 110 miles just to get to the base of it. And from the base, it took us 68 days above 18,000 feet before four of us finally reached the top, uh, making the first American ascent of the second highest mountain in the world. And back then, the first ascent ever um, without the use of uh, oxygen. And it took everything I could mine uh, in terms of willpower to make that last section uh, to the top without oxygen. Um, My climbing partner was stronger than than me. And I had to dig as deep as I ever had. And we had been up there so long. And I was so emaciated from so many weeks at high altitude. But we pulled it off. And we all got down alive. Uh, I had some frostbite. Uh, Another of my summit partners uh, was frostbitten much worse than me. And and, and we were damaged, but we were intact, and we had made the top, and, and we were so deeply fulfilled from having stuck with it. And after that climb, I realized over time that I had, uh, I had taken down from that mountain uh, the realization that if I did stick with anything, and I just didn't give up, and I didn't turn back. And I kept putting one foot in front of the other that you, I could pull off things that at the outset, I never dreamed I could, I could really accomplish. Um, and it's what a, it's a, it's a realization that was encapsulated uh, by another climbing buddy who told me one time when we were talking about this topic of tenacity, he said, or she said, you know, Rick, it's just like eating an elephant. You can do it if you do it one bite at a time. And that is something having realized in my 20s, I applied to the rest of my life over the following 40 and 50 years, to really great um, results, that, that tenacity and just resolve uh, can get you so far, you know in, in life, if, if you really learn how to apply it uh, to your sea level life.
0: When you make it to the tip of K2, does the figurative become literal and you are screaming from the mountaintops? And what else is it like in that moment being at the second highest point on planet Earth?
1: Well, the um, one of the climbers on the first American Ascent of Everest, uh, one of te- Jim Whitaker's teammates, <clears throat> Barry Bishop, uh, said succinctly uh, that there are no conquerors. There are only survivors. And on top of K2, I was a survivor. Um, I had dug as deep as I could to get to that point. Um, I knew that at that point, I still had the hardest part of the challenge in front of me, and that was getting down alive. <clears throat> and with that realization, uh, standing on top of K2, uh, I felt anything but a conquer. I felt like the smallest little ant on the back of the largest giant. And it was a giant that I still had to crawl down. Uh, And literally I did. Um, Getting into the next camp on our way down on the second day of what took five days after we got to the top just to get back to the base. um, To get to the tent at our fifth camp. Uh, which was on top of just a little knoll where I had to go back uphill again for 100 feet, I couldn't do it. And I knew I had to do it. And I remember sinking down to my knees and crawling. So I was literally crawling off the mountain, but we made it. And instead of coming off of that peak and that experience as some victor, um, I came off of it much more humble than that. Um, and I hope that that humility that comes from, to anyone who spends a lot of time in the wild parts of the world is is something else that readers of my book might take home with them and, and understand it and learn from. Um, but remember the story of Jim Whittaker in that photograph on Mount Everest standing on top of the highest mountain in the world with the American flag on his on his ice axe whipping in the wind. And, and that was something else I learned over my decades, Trey, a response and attitude towards climbing that wasn't right for me. It wasn't a fit, like, like the, the idea of going on these expeditions to conquer the mountain, to gain the summit, to plant the flag, that belonged to the last century. Uh, It wasn't me and it wasn't the century I was living in with my friends who were from then a next generation uh, of climbers who were personified for me, mostly by my two closest climbing buddies, Yvonne Chouinard and, and Doug Tompkins and when they made the most important climb of their lives, which was the third ascent of a tusk of granite in Patagonia, the place called Fitzroy, they hadn't put the American flag on the summit, but instead they'd made a banner <clears throat> called, uh, with, that they labeled uh, the Fun Hogs because that was their um, response. That was what they took from from being outside. They were there to... to experience the journey and and not the summit. It wasn't about the summit. It was about the, the footsteps it took to get to the summit. And, and they represented the opposite of the previous generation that were conquerors. You know, they were there to learn what they could and take from what they could uh, of their time and wildness in nature, um, lessons to take back to their lives, Um inspirations of the beauty of the wild part of our planet that they could take back, uh, to their sea level lives. And they did it with such great effect. Doug came back from, um, uh, Doug, before he left to Fitzroy had started a, a little company making tents and sleeping bags. He called the North face. And, uh, after that climb, he sold the North face, uh, to start a women's wear company with his wife uh, that became a spree. Uh, Yvonne came back from that climb, uh, went back to his business of making hardware for climbers, pitons and ice axes, and developed a line of clothes that he chose to name after this place that had inspired him and hmm. he called his company Patagonia. So these guys, these two close friends of mine had learned so much from the wild world that had really become the foundation for the successes in their lives uh, in the business world. And those were other things that, lessons that really inspired me that I also share in in my book and and what I I really took from my close friendship with those two guys. And and ultimately now at this point in my life, looking back, uh, you know, what I really took, especially from Doug Tompkins. And as I tell in my book, Another one of those near-death experiences that you had asked about earlier, Trey, Um, and one of the most recent for me in my own life was just a few years ago when Doug and I were on another expedition again in Patagonia, the place, the southern end of South America, sea kayaking uh, on a remote lake and in a a lake of very cold water when a a sudden gust of wind uh, capsized our two person kayak and we both ended up in the water fighting for our lives. And I was fortunate that I got out uh, of that unconscious from hypothermia, but ultimately able to recover. And, and Doug wasn't, uh, I lived and and he died. Um, and again, uh, those are experiences that I I think about every day and perhaps to go back to the earlier topic of our conversation, Trey, it's, it's those memories that help me get the very, very most I can out of each of the days that I have left. Before I get to that day on our calendars that's as yet unmarked, but the same day that all of us get to when our lives are over.
0: Is there any regret that comes into play when you have such a good friend that you lose in that capacity? Because there is obviously a mindset that comes into going out on these adventures over and over again. You'd rather be somebody, I think, just generally speaking, somebody who dies doing what they love. But when it comes to the accidental nature of things, how much pause does that give you, I guess?
1: Oh, it, it gives me, it would give anyone pause, I think, but, but from the pauses, you know, what can I learn from that? Um, I, I think I need to even be better than, than I've tried to be, uh, accommodating, uh, the, in, in the deepest way possible, uh, the knowledge that we all have with us that, um, you know, from the time we're born, as I said earlier, the clock starts ticking, and we're all going to, going to die. And right. when I was in my first near-death experience uh, with another close climbing friend, uh, Jonathan Wright, and also with Yvonne on a mountain in, uh, in China back in 1980, when we were caught in an avalanche, um, I was panicked as we fell down that mountain, uh, sure that I was going to die. And uh, as it turned out, I didn't die, but but Jonathan did. And I had to bury him on the side of the mountain. Uh, and I thought deeply about the panic and the inability to relax and what then I thought was my last moment alive. It took a full minute for us to fall about 1,500 feet down this mountain in this thundering avalanche. And and that's a lot of time. Um when uh when you think that those are the last seconds you you have to live but again i re- i was filled with panic and there were moments in that 60 seconds when i did uh pause to uh, think about uh the wonderful life i'd had up to that point i was just a little i was 30 years old at that time uh but in the in the main i was i was panicked and when years later decades later i was with doug in the water trying to fight to stay alive i panicked again for a moment but then i was able to relax Mm. perhaps being in cold water was obviously a different situation than being in a thundering avalanche down the side of a steep side of a mountain but um, i did pause to just deeply admire the beauty around me i can remember it so clearly the mountains across the water covered with glaciers the cerulean sky the 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 sapphire blue of the water in that lake <clears throat> i remember putting my head down in the water when i just assumed i only had a few minutes left in that cold water and opening my eyes and and just deeply taking in the deep blue of that lake and feeling it into my bones. Not, of course, the cold water into my bones, that was happening too, but just the extraordinary beauty of it all. And I later, when I did come out of that alive, I felt good about that response. And I want to build on that uh, to have a even better resilience than I have now and i think i'm pretty good at this in accommodating this fact into my life that we all have that our lives are are such a brief time on this wonderful beautiful planet of ours and and use that again as i said before to make each day as as special as i can and i i do that on a daily basis it's like a buddhist doing a practice um, it's like a meditation, uh, but an active one that you learn, that I'm learning, uh, to do throughout each day of my life. Um, now, human beings have been after this now for centuries and, and millennia. <laughs> this goes back as deep into time. I, I'm currently reading um, the, the Roman philosopher and Stoic uh, Seneca's book uh, called Letters on Ethics, And I'm reading it again because um, I admire that part of the Greek and Roman Stoics uh, that did learn to accept the limited time that we all have on life. And they were so good at not allowing any of the circumstances in our lives, the things that Seneca calls uh, fate that befall all of us, Uh, that make into our lives uh, conditions and situations other than what we hope and dreamed we we might have, and to put them into a context and to minimize them so that all of us can pull from our lives uh, the joyful things that are surrounding us. Uh, Those Stoics were so good at it. So I'm getting a lot out of this rereading (coughs) Seneca's Letters on Ethics. Uh, But, you know, it's a road. It's a process. uh, It's a journey. And like all journeys... um, they uh <clears throat> take time and uh and they and they're and, and this journey's one that I don't think I'll ever get all the way uh to the to the to the uh to the point of where I have nothing else to change or learn from. But I'm getting better. I'm getting more resilient all the time.
0: That continu- and- that continual hunger. I think is very admirable. And I don't know if I've ever met somebody that I would classify as more stoic than you, Rick. And you are obviously talking about some incredible and and sometimes some incredibly difficult experiences. You just mentioned losing a friend in an avalanche where you and three of your mates get caught up in this avalanche where you end up falling some 1500 feet. What is going on physically in that moment? And what's happening inside your head while this is going down? Well,
1: Trey, as I said a minute ago, that a lot of it was panic and um, and uh, But you you then- say
0: you say you say that you're panicking, but in reading the description in the book, you have the wherewithal in that moment to understand that you need to be swimming, you need to try and be swimming upstream, I guess is the the easiest way to explain it, and that may have helped to save your life in the end. So I you know, even though you say you were panicked, there was still a calm in that moment for you too. Well,
1: there was this moment of panic, and I overcame that to say, to tell, remind myself that in an avalanche, you have to do everything you can to stay on top of the snow so that when the snow stops and hardens, because avalanche snow hardens so quickly, turns literally into concrete-like substance, that if you're buried in the snow, you can't get yourself out. Uh, and you, while the snow is still moving, you can fight to try to stay on top by kind of swimming to, to keep yourself on the surface of the avalanching snow. And I reminded myself of that. And then I focused on that, as I say, in my book, I did the same thing when decades later, I was turned turtle with Doug Tompkins in that kayak. And I had to, at first, I was, you know, giving up, I thought I was dead. And then um I said, No, I got to keep fighting. I'll do everything I can to try to swim to shore. And, and that became the focus very similar to the same response i had all those years earlier in the, in the in the avalanche and i was at times uh in that long long minute in the avalanche sucked inside despite my ability to stay on top I'd, I'd be inside the snow and i'd just i'd i'd battle to get back on top uh and then when once i was on top i caught little little pieces of my uh, little little um glances of my friends next to me um and I could see, you know, uh, at one point, Jonathan right next to me. And then there, I saw Yvonne uh, struggling. And eventually after a minute, the avalanche slowed and, and stopped and, and I wasn't buried. And the, and, and the avalanche spread out onto a, an apron so that none of us were, were completely buried, but we were all injured to varying degrees. And I realized after a few seconds that it looked like I was the least injured and therefore, I had the most responsibility and duty to try to do what I could for those who were more injured than me. And everybody was hurt to varying degrees. But Jonathan was injured uh, enough that um, after trying to keep him alive for a half hour, uh, holding him in my arms, giving him mouth to that, mouth, that he died. And, and we buried him on the side of that remote mountain in eastern Tibet. At about 19 to 20,000 feet in elevation, uh, put uh, buried him under tumulus of uh, of rocks, <clears throat> uh, and went home. And I had to back home decide whether I was going to continue with mountaineering because, you know, the risks so were so palpably real at this point. And and what were those risks against the rewards? And and it took a long time to think that through. Uh, over three years. Uh, in that time, I. I met my wife, uh, I got married, uh, I changed the direction of my life uh, substantially, I started a family, but eventually, with my wife's encouragement, I, I did go back to to climbing and mountaineering and adventuring, and And she told me, you know, that it, she encouraged me to realize that that's who I was, and that I needed to work with her to, to make sure that as I continued these pursuits, I I did it uh, as mindfully as I could with his eye, as close as I could on managing the risk rather than taking the risk. And, um, and I did that. And then years later, um, when my friend Jonathan had died, he had left behind a, a one-year-old uh, daughter um, named Asia that he had named after his favorite place in the world. And Yvonne and I had both kept track of Asia. We would see her every few years. We would get together with her. as She grew up and she would became friends with my own uh, daughter. And when Asia was uh, 20 years old, um, she asked me if, uh, if uh, I would uh, go back to Asia with her, uh, if I would take her to the mountain where her father had died, and if I would climb the mountain with her to find his grave. And I asked my wife if, if I should go or not. I wasn't sure, and my wife said, "Yeah, of course you're going because Asia's not asking you to find her father. She's asking you to be her father." And that became another incredible lesson for me, Trey, uh, in the, in the, in what all of us, in the later stages of our lives, uh, can bring to our lives when we when we do inspire and help the younger generations uh, along. And um, Asia and I had a long journey. I decided I would not just take her back to the mountain, but take her across the Himalayas and and show her some of the adventures and experiences I know her father would have given her had he not died in my arms those 20 years earlier. And eventually we got to the mountain where he had died and we were able to climb up the side of it and we were able to find his grave. in the 20 year interim that had been um, that had been damaged. Uh, I think it had been taken apart by a big animal, like a snow leopard <clears throat> and his bones were literally scattered around and, and his daughter and I had to gather him back up uh, and gather those bones and, and, and rebury him uh, just the two of us. Uh, but like I have taken, lessons, life lessons from the mountains uh, and the experiences uh, Asia did too. Um, She turned her life around. She came home and reset her relationship, her very strained relationship with her mother Mm. uh, who had never remarried. Uh, And with her mother, Asia had grown up uh, with a household of just two. And she set the relationship on, on her own rules. And Mm. Then she married and started a career and had her own family very successfully. Um, Inspired so much by uh, the lessons of going on the adventures that two of us had, again, that I knew her father would have shared with her had he not
0: died. You love long walks. You chronicled a long walk that you took, I believe, in Kenya after climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. That included meeting individuals in the Waliangulu tribe. This is a group that literally hunts and kills elephants with bows and arrows. What did you learn from them?
1: You know, in that story about um, that trek across East Africa, the summit to sea adventure, as we called it at the time, um, I, I say in that story, Trey, that the best journeys answer questions that at the outset, we never thought to ask. And at the outset of that journey, um, I didn't realize what encountering the remnants of the Wally and Gulu elephant hunters uh, would, uh, I didn't realize the insights I would bring from that trip where we did encounter the remnants of uh, the elephant bow hunters called the Waliangulu. Um, The tribe had nearly disappeared. After the area had become a national park in the 1940s, um, the elephant hunters were forced out of the park and into villages, and they were arrested uh, not as subsistence hunters. In fact, they were actually commercial hunters, but they were now uh, recast as poachers and put in jail. And when they got out of jail, uh, they didn't know what to do because for thousands of years, they had successfully hunted elephants with bows and poisoned arrows. And um, I said commercial hunters because they sold the ivory uh, into a a global trade. Uh, And I, through my research after the walk, was able to learn that that trade had been going on for millennia there were uh, there was a uh, a description of the trade i found in an old roman text that had been written in the first century a.d
0: mm.
1: so i started to realize these guys had been successfully hunting elephants with bows and arrows for thousands of years and they had developed a equilibrium an an, an equalized relationship with with wild elephants who were still thriving in this landscape. And then I realized that after the Wally and gulu had been taken out of that landscape, that the elephant population had exploded because there were no more predators, in this case, human predators. And then a drought hit and uh, the uh, elephants who were by then uh, in an unbalanced relationship because there were so many of them started to die off in huge numbers. And the natives in the area were stealing into the national park and harvesting the deadfall ivory and selling it into the ivory trade and becoming very wealthy. And then the word got out. uh, So uh, tribal people from the North started coming down, especially from Somalia and uh, gathering the deadfall ivory. And then uh, they... When, when all that was gone and scavenged, the Somali, especially, who were in the middle of a civil war, started poaching the elephants with machine guns. And pretty soon the elephants started to plummet again uh, because now they were being hunted by humans who had a new technology. <clears throat> so all of this, and those poaching wars, of course, continue today. <clears throat> but all of this gave me a big pause to think about our, our species relationship with wildlife. And I started to dig back into, um, time. Uh, I ended up going to the La Brea tar pits in Los Angeles, where I learned that Southern California used to be just like Africa and that before human beings showed up, the Los Angeles basin, uh, looked like the Serengeti. Uh, and that once humans had showed up in in in, in large numbers <clears throat> that the the big mammals the the three species of elephants uh, and mastodons that used to live in California the uh, giant tree salas that filled the same ecological niches uh giraffes um the zebras there were actually wild horses in <clears throat> California with stripes that looked like zebras. There were there were lions that looked just like African lions, only they were 30% bigger. There were saber-toothed tigers. There were there were cheetahs that weren't actually closely related to the African and Asian cheetah, but by convergent evolution had evolved to look just like cheetahs. There was this huge assembly of megafauna across North America that very quickly when extinct, when human beings showed up in in large numbers. And and while there's this debate that continues today, whether it was climate change that led to those extinctions or the arrival of human beings uh, who hunted them, who who perhaps burned down the landscapes more than natural fires were, or whether it was some combination of the two, that's a, a hotly contested debate. But I, I landed on the fact that it's almost for sure a combination of the two. And it was, and my conclusion was reinforced looking at what happened when other human beings and not just people from Western civilization, but tribal peoples like the Maori arriving in New Zealand and taking out all the Moas that were giant ostrich-like birds or what happened in Australia when the Aboriginal people first arrived. arrived—and and uh, the megafauna went extinct there at the same time. And I started to realize that we humans have this instinctual um, drive to, whenever we have the technology combined with the opportunity to take out our brethren wildlife And and that it made me think about how we share with so many other wild creatures and brethren wildlife you know, three basic imperatives to eat, to not be eaten, and to procreate. Those those are the imperatives that we have carried with us out of the plains of Africa and taken across the planet in our diaspora. But then we have a fourth imperative that we have more strongly than any other creatures on the planet. And that fourth imperative is our species need for purpose it's our species need for for beauty and for solace and for an understanding of how we fit into the web of life and how to find from that the meanings of our lives and that we all of us have the opportunity in front of us to use that fourth imperative to overcome these other imperatives that we have been inherited from, our, from the, the wildness from which we all came, because we are all basically still animals, and that we have the ability to overcome those more animal instincts in our psyches that we've carried with us out of Africa, so that moving forward, we can learn and discipline ourselves to live in harmony with wildlife, to live in harmony with wildness, and to cease this 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 over harvesting of the planet and its resources that we've been doing for so many hundreds of years since the start of the industrial revolution to cease that and pull back from the cliff that we're otherwise heading towards and we're all gonna if we don't do something about it collectively go over
0: you met the dalai lama rick how did he enlighten you
1: In 2002, I went on an adventure with um, three of my mountain climbing buddies, uh, Jimmy Chin, Galen Rowell, and and Conrad Anker, to use our mountaineering experiences uh, and skills to uh, follow the migration of a creature called the shiru across uh, an uninhabited section of Northwest Tibet to try and discover their calving grounds so that working with wildlife biologists we could persuade the Chinese to uh, protect the area uh, against poachers who were otherwise harvesting these animals for their underwool and, and the animals were, were quickly going extinct. <clears throat> well, we did that. We, we um, couldn't carry enough supplies and backpacks for the crossing we knew we were going to have to make uh, across a section of Tibet where there's no human beings. In fact, there's no evidence that human beings had ever lived there in, in, in history. Um, and we built rickshaws, carts, uh, to carry each of us 250 pounds of supplies, and and we pulled it off. We we, uh, followed the animals. We let them lead us to their otherwise or hitherto unknown calving grounds. We documented the calving grounds. Uh, We wrote an article in National Geographic. We made a movie that National Geographic distributed. Um, We went on a lecture tour, Uh, uh, Another author even wrote a children's book about our adventure. And it got a lot of publicity. Uh, The wildlife biologists took that publicity back to China. They convinced the Chinese to create a new protected area around the calving grounds. We raised money for field patrols who turned back the poachers two years later. And since then the animals have started to increase. Uh, And it was a grand conservation success. Well, a couple of years later, The National Geographic, who had published the article, uh, got a hold of me and said that Dalai Lama was going to be visiting their headquarters in Washington, D.C., and they wanted me to come and give a short presentation of my trip, along with uh, three other people who had also done conservation projects in Tibet who would show uh, the Dalai Lama uh, short presentations of of theirs. So we did that, um, and after uh, I finished my presentation and the others had finished the ceo or president of national geographic looked down this long table at his holiness and said uh, said your holiness what do you think and the Dalai lama said i like rick's trip and he looked down and waved to me and i waved back i gave him a little queen's wave and then he looked down this table and he said rick are are you going to go on any other trips like that and i said are you kidding that one almost killed me (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> it had been so arduous. And he laughed and everybody else flinched because I was being informal with this guy and everybody else had been treating him like some sort of living God. <laughs> and um, then I thought, oh, gosh, did I do some faux pas here? You know, you know, just talking to him like any other guy. And uh, and he started, started laughing. And then he said, oh, that's too bad. He said. And then I thought, oh, what the heck? I leaned down the table and I said, I tell you what, um, I'll go on another trip. I'll go back. If you, if you come with me and, and he laughed and he said, okay, I'll come with you, but you got to carry me in your rickshaw. And then I looked at him and I said, Oh, I said, do you know how bad that would look for both of us? And, <laughs> and he started laughing and, and pretty soon his handlers told him he had to go. He had a, another appointment in the white house or something. And so, um, You know, off he goes, and he goes around the room shaking everybody's hand quickly. And he's kind of looking down; he's not paying much attention uh, to who he's shaking hands with because he's got he's got to get out of there. And he shakes my hand, and then he moves on. And then he stops, and he looks back, and he sees it was me, and he gets this big smile on his face. And he comes back, and he just stands in front of me, and then he reaches out and takes and holds my hand, and then pulls me into him. And then he touched his forehead to mine, and we held foreheads together for uh, a precious several seconds. One of the great experiences of, of my life that I retell in my in my book.
0: Incredible. All right, last question, Rick. You mentioned at the start of this conversation that this book started out as fifty stories, but it was pared down to twenty five. What would the twenty sixth story be?
1: Well, I tell you what. I just had an idea yesterday, Trey. I'm going to. Uh, start a website. I'm going to have it done just before Christmas. So anybody listening to this can uh, look for it uh, just before the holiday break. Uh, I'm going to have a a website for Life Lived Wild uh, on my own website, uh, rickridgeway.com. And I had this idea, I'm going to start putting the rest of the stories on the website, you know, maybe in weekly or monthly installments cuz there's a lot there's 25 more pretty amusing stories uh that I've got to share and I just decided yesterday that's why I'm going to share them.
0: Love it. Is there uh maybe a uh, brief summary of the 26th story? Well,
1: <clears throat> um there's a lot of sailing stories in there. Okay. Um
0: that's that's some... that's okay. We'll just we'll just make sure uh tell the people one more time what that website is going to be called.
1: Uh, I'm going to create a website for lifelivedwild.com, uh, but it's going to be part of my own website, rickridgeway.com. And I had the idea yesterday that I'm going to put the other 25 stories on there, you know, periodically, once a week, once a month. I don't know what the cadence is going to be, but uh, they're good stories and I want to share them.
0: Can't wait for that. He is Rick Ridgeway, a guy who calculates that he spent over five years of his life sleeping in tents. He is an adventurer in the purest definition of the world, and he has just shared twenty-five of these incredible life-altering experiences, as well as his philosophies on things in the new book "Life Lived Wild: Adventures at the Edge of the Map." Rick. Thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for pouring your heart and soul into these pages.
1: Oh, Trey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
0: Join me next time when I speak with herbarium curator and associate professor of dermatology and human health at Emory University, Dr. Cassandra Leah Quave on The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Ellis. Good day.